to Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that looks at the news with such a sideways glance that our eyes are coming out of our ears. I'm Ros Taylor. Just a reminder that the show is now on YouTube as well. So if you want to see as well as hear us, there's a link to our channel in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. On today's show, the Conservative press is suddenly full of claims that the government is about to turn things around and could somehow win the next election. We're asking what it would really take for Rishi Sunak to turn around the listing Tory tanker. Does he really have a chance of persuading us that he's fixing broken Britain? Plus, hardline Tories have wanted to leave the European Convention on Human Rights for years. Now they think the small boats crisis is the way to achieve their goal. How likely is it that they'll get their way? And what would it mean? Human rights lawyer Adam Wagner helps us investigate. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, wages are rising at the fastest rate since records began. But inflation means it's still a pay cut in real terms for many. What are the worst paid jobs our panel has ever done and what did it teach them? Let's meet the panel. Marie Leconte is a columnist and author of Escape, the book for terminally online millennials, out now in paperback. Hello, Marie. Hello. There was a story in the Times Notebook this weekend that uh, claimed that all gaming taught me was how to destroy stuff. Um, this will be news to all the people who play truck driving simulators to wind down. <laughs> I, I'm not one of them, but hey, you're, you're a gamer though of sorts. Does it, does it give you an appetite for destruction? No, so I actually, that really annoyed me. I think that, and I nearly wanted to write a response piece of saying that actually gaming has been nearly the opposite for me, where it's taught me so much, even especially playing the, the recent Zelda games of, um, you know, patience. Or if you want to do something, sometimes the only thing you can do is try and try again and get better. Um, so no, I think that, you know, I've generally become, I think, a better person because <laughs> of my gaming. So I'm not, I'm not sure what games he's playing or how he's playing them, but I'm slightly concerned. I feel like we've had very, very different experiences there. I do think I would only want to play sort of violent games. I, I did, you know, enjoy my early brushes with Grand Theft Auto just because, you know, <laughs> you can you can do so much nasty stuff and just yeah, it's, 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 it's liberating. Like just <laughs> yeah, it's it's liberating. It's a release, though, isn't it? I mean, it's doing hmm. stuff that you cannot do in real life. Obviously, and, obviously, and, and I do love a good fighting game as well. To be clear, but but again, I think I just see that as a release in terms of the stuff more that you know that's made me learn about myself. That's been very positive. But yeah, obviously, love to like go around slashing everyone and everything. Zoe Grunfeld is a political reporter at the New Statesman on annual leave, but still with us to give us her take on the news. Hi, Zoe. Hello, Roz. We're recording this on the day that the Lionesses beat the Matildas of Australia to put England in its first Football World Cup final since 1996. It's still quite odd, isn't it, to have women players on the front of the sun being bigged up you know, after decades of just wives and girlfriends and suddenly the women are centre stage. It's brilliant. I mean, it's so good to see women's sport finally be recognised. And I I don't really watch sport um, and I have watched the Lionesses and I definitely feel much more national pride when I watch the Lionesses than I do watching just the England team because it just feels like it's a new sort of birth of women's sport and we're finally recognising how much joy they bring to everybody who watches it. So yeah, it's, it's great. It's lovely to to see them. Yeah, I've been watching uh, women cricketers as well over the summer because I got heavily back into cricket after getting addicted to Test Match Special when I wasn't well earlier this summer. And of course, that, that was the men, the Test Matches, uh, England, Australia. But uh, suddenly I realised that women are playing cricket too. And women are commentating on cricket. That never used to happen. It's great. <laughs> it's almost like we actually can do those I know. things. Yeah, I know. Brilliant. Our guest this week is a barrister at Doughty Street Chambers, the chair of human rights charity Each Other and author of Emergency State, How We Lost Our Freedoms in the Pandemic and Why It Matters. Adam Wagner, welcome back to the show. 
Hi, thanks so much for having me. So Donald Trump's lengthy rap sheet now includes a felony indictment in the state of Georgia on racketeering charges. Because it's a state case, we're finally going to get a mugshot, which I think we're all going to enjoy, although perhaps we shouldn't. How are these charges different to the ones that he's already facing? Oh, well, it's hard to keep track, isn't it? Um, he, he's got the one about the um, the, the, the f- falsifying records um, in relation to Stormy Daniels. There's the assisting in some way with the um, the riots um, that were going on on the um, in January 2021, and then there is the um, the new charge, which is in Georgia, which relates to interference with the election there, and it's a state charge. Um, and I suppose that the, as well as the mugshot, the big, the big difference here, or the, the most important thing here, is he can't pardon himself if he becomes president um, because it's not a federal um, charge. So um, that will be very interesting. Although um, I'm watching very much from a non. Um, American law expert perspective, probably similar to everybody else's um, on the podcast. There was a Republican this week who was uh, telling uh, the world that Georgia ought to change its law um, so that it made it possible for uh, presidents to pardon themselves. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just the prob- probably just totally disinterested. Um, n- nothing to do with Trump. Probably has always, I assume, has already always been saying exactly the same thing um, uh, about that particular law. No, I mean, it's um, it's it's pretty extraordinary to watch. Mm. Um, and I mean, who knows what what will happen in any of those charges? Could could go any way at all. Before we start, a quick announcement. Every week we do the But Your Emails section, where we answer one question from our Patreon backers, but a lot of good questions go unanswered, and we know that lots of people who aren't Patreon backers have questions too. So we're going to do a But Your Emails special before the summer is out, and we want questions from everyone. Patreons, you can put your questions on the Patreon page. Everyone else, you can experience a warm glow of nostalgia by emailing your question to us at info at Yes, we're never changing it, just like we're always going to call X Twitter. That's Romaniacs, R-E-M-A-I-N-I-A-C-S, by the way. Use the subject line, but your emails, and look out for the special edition in the next few weeks. Keir Starmer got a little boost this week. Daily Mail readers were asked whether they'd rather go on a night out with him or Rishi Sunak. Turns out they prefer a pint with Starmer over a Diet Coke with Sunak. This go for a pint thing is weird, isn't it? Because most of the people I'd like to go for a pint with would be totally useless at running the country. It's a strange measure of competence. Anyway. Meanwhile, Ben Walker at Britain Elects, you may remember him joining Oh God What Now for the local elections when he got elected as a Labour councillor in Chester, has written for the New Statesman about the best and worst scenarios for the Tories. Best result first, it would see them gaining eight percentage points on Labour. On the worst showing, it would leave them 22 points behind and on less than 100 seats. Total wipeout, in other words. Well, pretty much total wipeout. But as Ben's analysis shows, that's not a done deal. True, some Tories have decided to ship out, but not everyone is smelling the whiff of mortality around this government. Let's do a thought experiment. Let's try to get inside Rishi Sunak's head. He's just heard that inflation has dropped sharply. That's one of his five pledges, by the way. He's settled the teachers' and nurses' strikes with pay deals that aren't by any standard excessive. Despite some predictions, Britain is not actually in recession. 
National debt is going in the wrong direction, but it's still less than France's and most people don't really care about national debt anyway. He's won a by-election in Uxbridge because of people's anger with a Labour mayor. And maybe most crucially, people aren't expressing any excitement about Keir Starmer. They want a change, sure, but a change to what? So Marie, it's hard to believe that less than a year ago, Boris Johnson was still a serious contender to become PM again. Can Sunak at least get some satisfaction from killing off that fantasy? Yes, I, I I think so. And I do think he's actually done reasonably well, you know, by which I mean he could have been doing so much worse. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, but the, the bar is quite low, I think, uh, in terms of Tory prime ministers over the past two years. Um, so, no, it, it, it must be actually, you know, if I were to try and get into his head, it must be quite frustrating to think, actually, you know, I personally think I've done a reasonably good job so far. And, you know, but but no one seems to massively care and will lose anyway. But I think that especially internally in the Conservative Party, in the Parliamentary Party, like it was really not a given that MPs would fall behind him. So when, obviously, because he lost the contest, Liz Truss happened, um, you know, and, and then he kind of got put in there. Um, and yeah, and I really think that there's a world in which actually Tory MPs could have gone insane again and maybe let Jenny try to bring Boris back or try to somehow topple him, you know, four months in and stuff. And they've not done that. Like Tory benches are quieter than they'd been in a very long time, which again is a, an interesting bar uh, given the past few years. So no, I think, again, he's not he's not doing terribly, which is maybe the cruel irony of it all. So broken Britain has kind of sunk into the public consciousness now. Uh, it's, it's you know, everything, when things go wrong, I just mutter broken Britain under my breath. And that happens about <laughs> two or three times a day. But is there actually a feeling that Labour can fix broken Britain? Or is this sort of feeling that we are now in permanent decline as a country? Has that gripped us? I think there's definitely a sense of inevitability in the public's mind about this period of pain that we're expecting and how long it's going to go on for. Inflation's interesting, obviously, because really it's in the domain of the, the Bank of England. Um, and although Sunak wanted to take credit for it in his five pledges, actually a lot of it is not really in the government's control. Um, and a new government, even a Labour government, would have similar issues. So I think a lot of people know that a Labour government wouldn't be a magic bullet for the fundamental issue, which, as Marie was saying, is the cost of living crisis. What I, I do think Labour can deliver on is two things. I think, first of all, they're much better placed to manage the housing crisis, which is another thing that is a big part of people feeling like this country is broken um, because they don't have so many NIMBYs in their party, essentially. So if they implement their agenda of, of reform, planning reform and uh, housing targets, then they might be able to start fixing one of the, the big issues in the country. In terms of public services, I think Labour are also probably slightly better equipped to deal with that. You know, they don't have as much opposition to tax rises in their party. Having said that, we do know that Starmer and Reeves are being very fiscally cautious. So their whole thing is reform over spending. But, you know, within the party, I think there is some appetite for more public funding. And I think when we talk about broken Britain, people are also thinking about the NHS. They're thinking about schools. They're thinking about infrastructure. And all of those need funding as well as reform. So although I don't know if that's quite seeping through to the public yet, all the things that Labour could maybe do, I think we might see as we get into sort of the election campaign period that Labour start picking up that people need to hear exactly what Labour would do in terms of reform and running with it. The problem is, when you talk about reform over spending, it's not as 
sexy. It's not as interesting. People don't go, oh, yes, what we really need is like loads and loads of great reform. They want to hear that there'll be more money for public services. So Labour, I think the big challenge for Labour is being able to sell that to the electorate in a way that they actually feel fairly excited about and not just like this is just more bureaucratic, you know, nonsense that's going to take ages and ages and is not really going to mean anything. Like they need to actually be able to sell a vision of what reform, specifically in the NHS, for example, would look like. Yeah, I think they had that to a certain extent with the Green uh, New Deal and all the investment there. And then they rode back on it because mm. they said there wasn't enough money anymore and, you know, and, and so on. And that was quite disappointing. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people... I think they really could have sold that to be like a very interesting proposition. You know, they could have said, we'll invest a certain amount. This will create new jobs. This will create growth. This will become sustainable and self-perpetuating. And as you say, yeah, they've rode back on it. It doesn't exactly inspire people. Um, So, yeah, I think Labour need to get a little bit more exciting, a little bit more radical. But there's still a way to do that without just promising loads and loads of money. Do you think, Zoe, that the exposure that Starmer will get in a general election campaign is that going to help him or hinder him? Because it's sort of received wisdom in some quarters of the Conservative Party that the more people see of Starmer, the less they like him. Is that true? Or perhaps is the opposite true? I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, I think Starmer has come on quite away in the past year just in making himself seem a little bit more relaxed and personable. You know, if you compare him at PMQs a year ago to him now, I actually think he's slightly better at the the gags and sticking it to Sunak and he's just comes across much more kind of sensible and managerial, but also like he has a bit more of a sense of humour. Um, having said that, I think the real test will be Labour's manifesto and how much they can sell, as we were saying before, this sort of cautious reform overspending vision. And I think that could put Starmer under a level of pressure that we haven't really seen before. You know, this is really... It's going to be a testing time in the run-up to election, a 20-point lead. You really have to sell it to the public. And as Marie was saying, we're in really tricky times. People feel really worse off. They want to hear that the government's going to change things for them. Will he be able to sell that vision? That's the important thing. Um, So we'll see. I mean, I think he's getting better at selling himself, but... You know, well, people would rather go for a pint with him. So that's that's one thing, I guess. Adam, some Tories are clearly tempted to fight the election on culture wars. But is the lawyer bashing that Suella Braverman is doing now, is it really new? Because you and I have been watching Tories bash lawyers for a long time now. Theresa May was always having a go at them as Home Secretary on one pretext or another. Is this really new? Um, well, first thing I'd say is that constitutional reform gets me out of bed in the morning. So <laughs> yeah. one, we are united on this point. That is one, uh, one vote for constitutional reform. I chose reform. the wrong group to say it to. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah no, absolutely. Um, but it doesn't get most people out of bed. Um, the lawyer bashing. Well, look, the, the, you've got. I think you've got to draw a line between um, the the tension which has existed for a very long time in between courts and the government um, and the tension that exists between lawyers and the government, because I think they're two different things. Um, and, and I mean, it's you know certainly the case that since uh, at least the Human Rights Act came into force 20, more than 20 years ago, um, there have been regular swipes, including by New Labour, uh, almost as soon as they passed the Act, at decisions taken by judges. Um, we had, I mean, back in, I think it was 2005, there was the 
um, Afghan hijackers case, which was a really, you know, big, um, controversial decision um, not to allow the deportation of um, people who'd hijacked an airplane. Tony Blair basically, you know, said if, you know, if this continues, I'm going to reform the, the Human Rights Act, you know, which he had passed himself. Um, and there's been lots of, there've been incidents like that. But I, I think that the, this, idea of lawyer bashing this this tactic of lawyer bashing is quite new um and it's cha- there's been a step change at the very least since Boris Johnson um it quite clearly the the prorogation decision by the supreme court I think he took that very personally um and you know there's a lot of briefing about lady hale the um quite I mean I think quite misogynistic briefing actually about lady hale but she also you know fr- from a in the grand scheme of judges' perspective, she's clearly a sort of what would be described as a liberal judge. So you saw a bit more of the um, we th- th- there are certain judges that are have it in for the government sort of narrative, um, and and that you know, and you also saw the press picking up on that. I mean, the press have gone after judges for for a long time. I remember writing about um, the Telegraph going after you know printing doorstepping immigration judges um, at least a decade ago. But this, the enemies of the people headline after the prorogation decision, um, one of the prorogation decisions where they showed the three judges was really quite a sort of big deal in the, the Daily Mail. Um, and I think Boris Johnson then then took it up because, I mean, I've, I've got theories about what, you know, personal reasons that Boris Johnson may have for um, feeling um, a little bit sort of aggressive towards lefty lawyers, um, particularly as he was married to one for decades and was divorcing one um, in the in the sort of uh, same period as all this was going on. But at the same time, you had the elevation of Keir Starmer, who is, without a shadow of a doubt, if you're going to describe anyone as a lefty lawyer, that's what his career was. He was a lefty lawyer. But then it's not quite as easy to stick on him as a, as a, as a, a description because he was then the director of public prosecutions. He's sort of, um, he's an interesting case. But I think Johnson saw it as important to, first of all, undermine the courts um, because they were slapping him down. And at the same time, this narrative of the lefty lawyers have it in for us, you know, along with the blob and the civil servants, they're all coming after us and they're stopping government doing what government needs to do. It was quite a useful rallying cry, particularly for the base and also an attack on Starmer. And since then, um, you know, really disappointingly, despite Rishi Sunak's sort of, I'm going to be a, more of a grown-up politician, one of the policies, he's, one of the practices he's absolutely kept going is this um, lawyer bashing. And, and I think it's really to do with Suella Braverman. And it's her, it seems to be her driving it in particular. Zoe, as Adam was saying, Keir Starmer has uh, pretty successfully reinvented himself as less of a lefty lawyer and more as a small C conservative. But the desire not to alienate conservative-minded voters sometimes seems overwhelming. Do they are they just rolling over too quickly? It does feel a little bit like they're rolling over too quickly at the minute. I think since they sort of slightly U-turned on ULES and and the um, twenty eight billion for their green growth fund, it, people are starting to wonder if they're going to back down on um, the green policies, which were pretty popular, I think, and quite a lot of people were quite pleased with. 
it's interesting that the lefty lawyer thing, actually recently, I feel like Starmer's been leaning into that a little bit in PMQs. Um, while Sunak was kind of throwing it at him and attacking him, he was actually kind of leaning into it himself and quite enjoying it and quite proud of his credentials as, you know, previous um, director for public prosecutions. His shadow foreign secretary as well, David Lammy, did a really impassioned speech um, a few months ago about how important international law was and how Keir Starmer's the perfect person to lead the Labour Party because he really understands the importance of law. So on that on that issue, I feel like Labour are actually realising it's an asset to them. On their broader sort of U-turn on various things and seeming to uh, lean into what the Conservatives want, I think they're just keeping quite close to the centre at the minute and almost trying to keep their head down a bit and trying to avoid as much scrutiny from the Conservatives as possible. Um, I can see that it's starting to be irritating <laughs> to the general public who want to see Labour actually put their, you know, their best foot forward and say, this is what we stand for. Um, and again, to go back to, you you know, whenever they produce their manifesto, that will be their time to do it. But I think at the minute, they're just trying to almost keep a low profile so they can keep preparing what it is they're going to push for um, and keep presenting themselves as a realistic alternative to the Conservatives. Marie, moving to Suella Braverman again and Priti Patel, they're at loggerheads over migrants. Priti Patel now doesn't want to house them in army bases, even though that was her own policy when she was Home Secretary. Braverman has also aligned herself with the National Conservative movement in the party, who've quietened down a bit in the last few weeks. But you know, we heard a lot about them during their during their conference. Um, Patel, on the other hand, like her mentor Boris Johnson, is not really a National Conservative, and everyone in the party is ostensibly loyal to Sunak, as we were saying. They have calmed down, but. Do you have a sense of what's going on a bit under the surface? Are people starting to line themselves up for a potential defeat? I think it's part of that, but I think it's also that... So I think the right of the Conservative Party behaves in a way that's quite similar to the left of the Labour Party, where if they can splinter, they will splinter. <laughs> um, and, and I think that actually Priti Patel and Suella Braverman are not quite in the same wing of the Tories, where, again, that she's very much of that, you know, proper, sort of like proper, proper right, etc. Whereas Priti, again, was a kind of like Johnsonite. And even though she is, you know, obviously she used to want to bring back hanging once upon a time. She's not exactly a kind of centrist Cameroon herself, but but I do think they kind of belong in slightly different groups. And perhaps and that's very much like a, a, an educated guess because I don't actually know for a fact. But I wonder if there's a social element as well, because if you look at Tory factions very often, especially in Parliament, um, you know, they're, they're nearly more social than their political is who gets along with whom, who went to school with whom, etc. So I think a, a lot more so, I think that Labour Party factions tend to be a lot more ideological. I think the Tory ones are as social as they they are ideological, but no, clearly I think there's there's a bit of a yeah differentiation. But in that in that same way as well, I think that Kemi Badenoch, like the discourse around her, has been quite interesting because she was briefly the darling of the right, uh, but now actually, if you look at the kind of natcon wing, etc., the proper extremists, they're a bit like, oh god, you know, she's practically left wing. And so how what? Um, so, so yeah, so so I think it is just a case of any extreme of any party will end up sort of like endlessly splintering. Hmm. Is Suella Braverman safe at the Home Office? Because there is talk of a reshuffle at some point. Would anyone else be able to do a better job on small boats than she's doing? Or is she just stuck there because, frankly, it's a cursed 
job? Um, so, yes, I mean, I think the rumour is still that the reshuffle will happen the second Parliament comes back from their summer holiday. So that's quite exciting. Love a reshuffle. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I don't know. So I think that because I think that Robert Jenrick being in, you know, Minister of State at the Home Office and obviously Jenrick is a very close ally and friend of Rishi Sunak's. That definitely raised an eyebrow with the last reshuffle. That was you know, clearly an admission, I think, that Suella was probably not going to last forever. Um, and that there was, you know, an obvious replacement. So I think, you know, Jenrick was maybe not quite ready yet to be home sec, but, you know, let him do this job, like the Minister of State job for quite a while. And then he's the obvious replacement. So, and, and I think, you know, that that is a theory I definitely buy. But then again, yeah, I, I, I don't really know. I, I'm quite conflicted on that because I do think... You could make the argument that small boats is unsolvable. So actually, would you really want to put a very close ally of yours there just mm-hmm. to watch them mess up? And is it not easier to have someone there who you don't really like anyway, who's not part of your kind of core team and be like, you you kind of do your thing over there and have a terrible time and we will not be as tainted as we would be if, yeah, for example, Generic was doing it. But then again, I think Rishi himself is doing lots of stuff on small boats and talking about it. So not, yeah, not entirely sure, but yeah. John, so the second bit of your question, I'm not convinced anyone could do a better job because, again, there's not you're not going to solve this by cruelty and, you know, um, ignoring the actual problem and refusing to create safe and legal routes. So I think anyone trying to fix it but using the same sort of base as Suella is probably not going to be doing much better than Suella. So we're talking more about wages and the extra bit, but this year they've risen by nearly 8%. And because of the triple lock on pensions, that is going to cost the government over £110 The Daily Express was celebrating this morning because it apparently means about £72 a week extra for each each pensioner per month. Can the Tories even think of getting rid of the triple lock before the next election? Or are they just too much enthralled to, to that elderly base? Yeah, I think they're too enthralled to their elderly base. I mean, the majority of their voters are of or soon to be pension receiving age. Um, and I don't think many of them would be too happy um, if if the triple lock was taken away. Um, I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Because we have a generation of young people for the first time who are increasingly worse off than the generation before them. Mm. Um, we've got national debt. We've got poor productivity. We have an ageing population. The, the pensions crisis is kind of looming, actually. Um, I think it's predicted that it's going to cost, state pensions are going to cost more than education, policing and defence combined. As much as the government probably should do something about it, they won't. And I think actually it's a difficult um, situation for Labour as well, because obviously when it was originally introduced, it was because a lot of pensioners were in poverty. And of course, that's the sort of thing which Labour would very much be in favour of a policy to, to help those. Now to take it away, it's it's almost like a poison chalice. You just don't want to do anything with it. So it's a difficulty for Labour as well. So I actually think the Conservatives would rather keep it and just let Labour deal with, you know, the economic fallout of, of not addressing it. In his heart of hearts, do you think Sunak thinks he can turn the polls around? I think he'll give it a good go. Um, Sunak strikes me as a man who's often got what he wanted, often achieved um, things if he's put his mind to it. I think he works hard um, and I think he genuinely believes if he works hard, he should be able to get things done. Um, We saw it with his five pledges. I mean, they seemed like relatively sort of simple promises and I think he was very assured that he'd be able to... to, um, achieve them. And actually, they've been a lot more tricky than he realised. And I think to some extent that showcases 
the maybe possible naivety he has, which is a man who has always managed to do and achieve things, but actually isn't, you know, hasn't actually thought about the sort of political political ramifications of certain things. Um, I think he, you know, to his credit, he has a lot of energy. He works hard, but I actually think maybe the people around him know he can't turn it around, and I think Sunak maybe deep, deep down thinks that as well. But I do think he will give it a good go. And I think to some extent he has, I think he works harder than someone like Johnson. And I think he's probably more competent than someone like Liz Truss. So I think if anyone can do it, it might be Sunak, but I think chances are looking slim. Now let's have this week's question from one of our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. Leon in Stamford says, it appears that there is a fighting cage going begging somewhere. Now that Musk and Zuckerberg won't be using it, which British politicians would the panel like to see settle their differences in no holds barred grapple action? Marie, do you have thoughts on this? Uh, So many. I could do an entire podcast dedicated entirely to this question. Thank you so much uh, for sending it. Uh, No, so I think, fine, if I had to limit it to just one. I I always find PMQs between Angela Rayner and Oliver Dowden quite interesting because they clearly just really quite passionately dislike each other. Um, And because my problem is originally, obviously, Rishi Sunak, Keir Starmer would be the obvious one, but I think Starmer would win no question now. So he'd just flatten him. Um, However, I think Rayner and, yeah, and Dowden would be quite fun. And again, I I mean, I I do worry that, you know, Rayner scares me, which I mean as a compliment. Um, So she would definitely win but, but but then again, I felt Oliver Dowden has that kind of public schoolboy, slightly like manic energy, like that look in his eyes. So I think that'd be quite fun to watch. <laughs> Sorry, how about you? That's a good one. Yeah, I totally agree that Dowden could go a bit feral. Yeah, no, no, I yeah. like, he'd get scratchy in a way you would not say, like, Raina you would ex- expect to get scratchy, but then they'd both get the nails out yeah, and yeah, yeah. really weird, like cats. Definitely. So I would probably go for Nadine Dorries versus Rishi Sunak because I feel he like... He would die. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. I, and I think it would totally, I mean... It would just, yeah, she would ruin him, I think. Um, I mean, she's really angry with him. Um, And I just think it would be quite interesting to watch because I don't think Sunak would fight back. I think it would be over in like five seconds. (laughs) How have we not mentioned Dominic Raab so far, who clearly is ready for this challenge? He's too scary. Yeah. Yeah, no, who could we put him up against, I think, is the problem. Weirdly, Therese Coffey, I think, is the one who could just like lunge to go, no, like, shut the fuck up. Yeah, I think that would would work. Adam, do you have any thoughts on this? If not, don't worry. (laughs) Um, It's rather silly. The the very beginning of the podcast, I I think Rishi Sunak needs to be um, on Twitch or something like that. I think he needs to be put on a video game sort of uh, battle with um, with an, another equivalent um, politician, maybe Starmer, although I don't know whether he he's a video gamer. But I just feel like Sunak, that would be his natural, that'd be a good place for him, is sort of sat in a, on, a, on a couch in a basement somewhere, you know, online with lots of equipment on his head. Um, playing, you know, uh, fighting somebody. Um, I, I think that's probably where he should be put after the election. Oh, he'd definitely fight in the metaverse, wouldn't he? He'd be one of those weirdos. I, I think so. Mm, I think he already yeah. looks a bit like he's in the metaverse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does have that That strange, yeah. Sure. <laughs> yes. Remember to send us your questions for the But Your Emails special in a couple of weeks' time. It's a 
over a year since the first deportation flight to Rwanda was grounded after a last-minute judgment by the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. Despite the efforts of some Conservatives, Britain is still a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights, and Sunak says he doesn't see leaving as necessary. But the right is trying to engineer a groundswell in favour of leaving the Convention. Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick, who we've just been talking about, refused to rule out the prospect of leaving when interviewed on national radio during the disastrous Small Boats Week. Nigel Farage is trying to characterise it as Brexit Mark II. And The Telegraph wrote last week that leaving the ECHR has gone from unthinkable to inevitable for the Tories. Could one of the government's final acts be taking us out of the convention, along with Russia and Belarus? Adam, precious few voters understand what the ECHR is and what it does, as you and I know well, because we were both sitting on the board of a charity that discussed this quite often. Although they didn't, to be fair, know much about the EU. The two are, of course, completely separate. What's the whistle-stop summary of what the ECHR is and how it came to be? So the European Convention on Human Rights is a treaty that we signed up to um, back in 1953. It well predates the EU and in, in a way was a bit of a sort of precursor. Um, it was part of the European movement. I mean, it was it came out of the European movement and it was driven by Churchill. He, he was the absolute, you know, um, big biggest uh, cheerleader of this idea of the what he described as the enthronement of human rights. This is during the Second World War when they were trying to. There was a, there was some talk during the Second World War about what would happen afterwards. So once the fascists and uh, were defeated, if they were defeated, what new future could be built, um, both on a sort of pro- in a progressive sense, but also in a um, defensive sense, as in how do we stop this, ha- what we've just lived through, um, the rise of fascism and extremist totalitarian ideologies, um, and also the mass murder of people who didn't have the power to prevent it or were discriminated against? How do we stop that happening again? And and this idea emerged of that you couldn't you couldn't have the situation that you had before the Second World War, essentially, which is that there were every country could do essentially what it wanted, um, and there was no international standards. Um, and because you know, the, it, they, it was realised that there was no a, a modern state wasn't what it was considered a modern state at the time. Didn't prevent. Um, the extremists taking power didn't prevent the laws being changed to allow things that are you know deeply deeply immoral and, and wrong and evil in in some cases. So the, um, the this idea of inter- a stronger international law took root, and um, you had the in the during the Nuremberg trials um, of the Nazi perpetrators the you had the um, the crimes against humanity these inter- these ideas of international criminal laws and at the same time this development of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights um, through the UN and a number of regional instruments, one of which was the European Convention on Human Rights. And and what it basically does is every state that signs up to it adheres to a a quite a simple list of rights, things like the right to life, the right not to be tortured, the right not to be unlawfully detained, the right to private and family life, the right to freedom of speech. And not only are those rights sort of um, kept at a state level, the states also agree that there will be um, that they will submit to the jurisdiction of an international court called the European Court of Human Rights, um, which was set up as uh, something called the Commission of Human Rights, and then really sort of took root in the 1990s um, and became a court. 
um, or became it, it was called a court, and 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 since then it's it's ruled on um, issues uh, as diverse as the sort of human human life is. Um, it now protects about eight hundred million people, not just in Europe but beyond um, places like Turkey. And it's um, it's been a sort of bugbear of um, of the particular kind of conservative um, politician and activist for quite a long time now. So Labour tried to strengthen the uh, presence of the European Convention, if you like, in in, of Britain, in, in Britain by making by making it into the Human Rights Act. So that that makes it part of British law rather than simply a a treaty uh, outside it. Is the hope, is it the desire of the right wingers to try and get rid of the Human Rights Act as a starting point? I mean, it's it's a bit of a muddle because um, sometimes they, it, it depends who you who you listen to, sometimes they'll say, we just think the whole idea of, of human rights is completely un-British and un- unnecessary, um, you know, and, and we want to get rid of the the, the local version, which is the Human Rights Act, and the international version, the European Convention. Um, and sometimes they just focus on the, the sort of softer version of it is to say, we don't, we want to get rid of the European Convention, prevent these judges in Strasbourg having any say at all on our law. And at the same time, we'll keep some sort of human rights protection in our, in our local law. Um, but it, it's a bit incoherent because really what they want is, I think fundamentally what underlies this all is it's not just about sovereignty, this sort of Brexit business of, of, of making our own laws for our own people. It's also about the very, some of the sort of fundamental ideas behind these rights, um, protecting unpopular minorities, protecting refugees. Um, and, and if you listen to quite a few of the, the individuals who are real sort of tub thumpers against the European Convention, they, they don't stop at the Euro- European Convention. They're very worried, they're very concerned with the Refugee Convention. You know, there's quite a lot of stuff recently being written about, oh, well, you know, the Refugee Convention was set up after the Second World War. It's not relevant anymore. There's these sort of waves of people coming across the channel and we need to um, not just prevent them we not not just sort of get rid of the human rights protections, but get rid of refugee protections as well. So it's a big sort of basket of issues which are often pulled together, um, and, and I think pretty incoherently actually. So just as with Brexit, they portray it as something that would be simple to leave. You know, we could you know walk away tomorrow, but it wouldn't be, would it? No, I mean it's complete you know rubbish. If you read Tim Montgomery's article um, in the I think it was the Telegraph recently. Um, sort of almost everything he says about how simple it would be is just, you know, not it's just false. Most important again, it's Northern Ireland is one of the most important re- practical reasons because the European Convention is built into the Good Friday Agreement, um, and it's not it doesn't say the Human Rights Act. It says the European Convention, and the European Convention is an international treaty. It has um, within it a right of individual petition to the courts, um, and I think it's. It's just wrong to say that the Good Friday Agreement could be satisfied by just having sort of a, a human rights act. The second issue is the EU, the relationship with the EU. One of the big planks of the post-Brexit deal, the security, I think, security and crime um, cooperation agreement, would be instantly um, would instantly disappear um, by its own terms if we left the European Convention on Human Rights. So that it, it actually says in the agreement. As if the UK decided to, to leave the European Convention, this 
um, agreement would instantly be terminated. Um, and, and, and the reason for that, the reason the European Convention is so important to the EU is it's, it's a central sort of plank of how they see their values being upheld. But also, um, you know, if you're going to have, for example, cooperation between police forces, it's very important that there is a, a, a basic standard that um, that you know the police forces will be held to um, with things like, um, you know, uh, torture. Um, for example, that the European Convention is one of the, it's been a key um, it's been a key mechanism for preventing inhuman and degrading treatment and torture across Europe. It's not been the only mechanism, but it's been a an important mechanism for all sorts of reasons. Um, and that's you know really the, the EU correctly sees that as an important element of cooperating between public authorities, that things like that aren't done, and they know they're not going to be done because the, in, there are institutions to prevent them. Um, so, you know, on, 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 the, on those levels, it would be practically very difficult. But I think, look, I, I think there's a more basic objection which I have to all of this, and I've had, you know, for, throughout the last sort of 10, 15 years while it's being mooted, which is that the... This is a, there's a real sort of element of grievance politics to this all. Um, it's the European Convention is held up as oh you know this European thing that you know uh, it's got problems with sovereignty. Um, it allows in the nasty people and stops us deporting them. But but ultimately it's it's held to blame for lots of things that it isn't responsible for and that wouldn't be a that wouldn't go away if the European Convention went away. For example. If we were to leave the European Convention tomorrow, we'd still be a party to the Refugee Convention. So the the Rwanda decision by the courts could equally be reached under the Refugee Convention, along with the fact that it does a lot of good. And I'm happy to talk about that. The the bad that it does is in, ex, hugely overinflated um, by. Uh, for the, in the same ways that the Brexit argument was overinflated, and the and the the, uh, the downsides to the EU were hugely overinflated. Sorry, what's your sense of the Tory Party's appetite for leaving the ECHR? Are they really getting behind it? Well, I think there isn't a huge appetite for it for for all the reasons Adam just outlined. I there's also a large proportion of Conservatives within the party who are very who are actually in favour of the Convention of Human Rights. You only have to look at sort of the One Nation Caucus to see how many lawyers are in there. And when you speak to them about international law, they see it as really important, not just in that it allies us with other like-minded countries, uh, makes things like uh, policing across borders easier, but also because they see... England and, um, you know, the British government as having a part to play in the world where they set an example. And I think many of them are worried that if we were to come out of those conventions, we would be setting a terrible example. So that's part of the arguments they use about why we should stay in the Convention on Human Rights. I wouldn't say we should totally disregard the importance of those MPs who are speaking out about wanting to leave, because these things have a habit of picking up speed. Um, so you just need a few Tories to talk about it and then more and more people start talking about it and then you get, you know, uh, reform or whatever is trying to posit the same idea and then it puts pressure on the Conservatives to respond. So I wouldn't totally disregard um, how important it is, but I actually think the majority of Tory MPs are not in favour of leaving um, and actually see it as very important. 
it's it's really hard to tell because over the years there's been um there's there's been this sort of rumbling about the European Convention um and there's a very um vocal bit of the Tory party um and it used to be that there was a also a very vocal bit of the Tory party that was against it so people like Dominic Grieve and the sort of I think what were described at one point as the runny mead Tories um you know referencing Magna Carta but I I think a lot of those t- those people have left, um, you know, people like David Gork, you know, th- those sorts of li- li- um, centre-right le- um, centre um, Tories. I-, I think a lot of them were booted out by Boris Johnson. Many of them will also probably leave um, during this election. So I wouldn't be totally surprised if you ended up seeing the leaving the European Convention become a policy. There will always be strong voices against it because, uh, as I mentioned, the origins of the European Convention were, were really very Tory. In fact, Labour was against the European Convention for, for quite a bit um, in the 50s because they saw it as pure, really about political rights. They wanted social rights. Um, they saw it as a right-wing attempt to avoid giving people social rights, um, which weren't really included in the European Convention, unlike they are in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the UN treat uh, the UN agreement, but they're not in the European Convention. So I I think there's quite a right-wing background to this. Um, And in fact, if you're in the slightest bit interested in the UK as an international force for good, the European Convention is is really where it's at. You know, that's that's how you promote values um, to lots of different countries. So, I, I mean, I'd really like to think that the Tories won't be you know, uh, extreme enough to pick up on these sort of um, people like Tim Montgomery, Suella Braverman, um, who have supported leaving. Um, but I, you know, after Brexit, I don't think there's any guarantee at all um, that that will um, be enough. I'm inclined to agree with you. But Marie, can they make enough people in the country rather than the party care during a cost of living crisis about this? I'm not convinced they can, and because I think the problem is also if you look about, you know, so if you look at the referendum on AV, for example, and really look back at how absolutely shameless the campaigning was on that, was it the pictures of the newborn baby saying he needs a new hospital, not a new voting system, with that 300 million or whatever it was. Mm. Um, so I think you know they would probably do that, but I think. The, the main difference is that they're not arguing for the status quo here. They're arguing for a big change. And I think we've we've recently, listeners of this podcast in particular, may be aware of the little known fact um, that we had quite a big change to the status quo uh, in Britain recently, which has not gone tremendously. So I'm not, so it's not clear to me. So I think it's both people have bigger fish to fry at the moment in their kind of day-to-day lives. But also, again, they've taken a gamble. You know, they took a gamble quite recently. It did not go so well. So I'm, I'm not convinced you could convince them basically to be like, hey, that went super well. Shall we do another thing kind of at random? Lol. Adam, what's your sense of which way the Supreme Court is likely to go when they decide this autumn? Are they going to break with the Court of Appeals ruling in June? Because the Court of Appeals ruling wasn't unanimous. It was two to one, wasn't it? Yeah, the Lord Chief Justice was the was the dissenter, although he's now um, he's he's finished his time. Um, so it was it was it was as powerful a, a dissent as you can get. It's really hard to know with the Supreme Court at the moment. They they are they've certainly not ta- they don't seem to be taking um, what I describe as um, unexpected decisions in um, in these kind of cases. They are they have sided with the government and public authorities a lot. 
And that's certainly my sense um, since Lord Reed um, took over from Lady Hale. So it's entirely possible the government will succeed. Um, they've got David Panic um, as their barrister, who you may remember is the barrister who won against them in the, prorog- in the prorogation case and in the second um, Brexit case. So it really is um, on a knife edge. However, I also think, look, in actual fact, the Court of Appeal judgment was pretty simple. It said that the law is that you cannot send someone back to a um, to a situation where there is a real risk that their rights will be breached because, in this case, Rwanda has a pretty poor asylum system. And the big question for the Court of Appeal was, do we take the government's assurances, as in our government's assurances, that this system will magically resolve itself? And it's got really sort of quite fundamental issues, including a potentially corrupt judiciary. Will it resolve itself in time for whenever, you know, the next few months, by the time they're going to start sending, they want to send people to Rwanda? And the Court of Appeal said, uh, we, we just can't say um, that there isn't a real risk that this, this system will not be resolved. And I'd be really surprised, unless the government pulls a rabbit out of a hat, sort of, you know, they come in with an expert who says, actually, Rwanda have done this incredible job of just completely revising their entire judicial system. In fact, their political system and their asylum system are all now really good. I'd be really surprised if the Supreme Court um, reaches a different decision, but I've been wrong enough times before. We've reached the end of the show. So what are the stories that have gone under the radar this week? Marie, have you got one for us? Yes. So, I I mean, you may have seen that uh, a a peculiar man called Javier Milei won the presidential primary elections in Argentina recently. And I think, and I'd vaguely seen that he was clearly a bit of a kook, but I thought I'd look more into it. And um, I'm just going to read you some facts about him because I think people deserve to know who currently looks like it could be the next president of Argentina. Uh, so, he, so he's been a member of the lower house there in the Congress since 2021. So he's an anarcho-capitalist, which is not a great start, I think, for anyone. Uh, again, sex education in schools, anti-vaxxer, climate change denialist, pro-gun. But uh, all of those are fine. Like, you know, we're used to that. But then it moves on to um, his slogan in 2021 was, I didn't come here to lead lambs, but to awaken lions. Sure. Uh, when he took office, he fulfilled one of his campaign proposal, which was to raffle his salary to a random person so that money could return to the citizens. Uh, he also supports the sale of both organs and children. Sure. Uh, would close the Ministry of Science and Technology as president, uh, is a champion of quote-unquote free love. And one said, which I mean, I'm unclear that anyone had asked, uh, that he's capable of going for three months without ejaculating. Um, and he has five dogs, four of whom are clones of the first one. Right. So anyway, so Javier Millet, you will probably be hearing a lot more about him soon. And my God, there's a, there's a lot there. There's a lot of interesting and scary things happening in South America at the moment, yeah. generally. Um, Zoe, how about you? Well, mine isn't quite as crazy <laughs> as that, but there was an exclusive in The Independent on Monday, which was that one in eight privately rented homes pose a serious health hazard. So these are new figures exclusive to The Independent that 615,000 properties contain serious defects such as damp, mould, pollutants, structural flaws and fire hazards that are putting residents' health at risk. I think this is just a really important stat. The number of people, you know, families, 
with children, young professionals, all sorts of people who live in private rental homes are having to deal with really terrible circumstances that are actually making them ill. Um, and that could actually cause them to die. Um, and yet nothing's being done. We're still not building enough homes. We still don't have a proper landlord's charter. We still don't have an end to no-fault evictions. And it basically means that so many people are afraid to flag these issues to their landlord because they're just worried about being kicked out. It's just shameless profiteering and the government doesn't seem to be taking it seriously, despite the death of that poor two-year-old boy in Rochdale. It just, it carries on. There was a guy today, her landlord, who stuffed 40 migrants into his small terraced house and he uh, has been given the punishment of not being able to rent out any more properties for a whole five years. Ugh. And that's the show. Thanks to Zoe. Thank you. Marie. Thank you. And Adam. Thank you. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how to get yours. Don't forget you can now watch all our shows on YouTube. There's a link in the show notes. We'll see you next time. Hello and many thanks for supporting us to Patrick Murphy, Lucy, and many thanks for renewing your backing to Jill Shallot. And hello to yet more backers who've come back into the fold. Aldi, Carol Langham and Tom Evans. And from me, it's welcome back and thanks to the following supporters who've re-upped their contributions. Henry Williams, Simon Link and Robert Levac. We'll see you next time. I Got What Now was presented by Ros Taylor with Zoe Grunewald and Marie LeConte. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Socials by me and Jess Harpin. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to The Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. The good news for workers is that between April and June, wages grew at their fastest rate since records began in 2001. The bad news is that inflation is seven times higher than it was back then. As Margaret Thatcher put it, inflation devalues us all. The national minimum wage is £10.42 an hour these days, but that's only if you're over 23. Apprentices earn a measly £5.28, or less than a pret sandwich, as I think of it these days. Marie, what was your first paid job? What did you get paid? Well, so technically, my first ever paid job was um, when I was 17, I got a black cash in hand job working in a fruit and vegetable market on a Sunday. Um, and I turned up to my first shift on no sleep because I was 17. It was a Sunday. Um, and I got fired after two hours and told never to come back. Um, <laughs> and actually, and that put me off work so much that I didn't do it again for four years. Um, and, you know, I went to university and, um, and to be honest, my parents were very kind for the first year. They were like, you know, you've just moved to a different country. That's really big. We'll kind of fund uh, your life for the first year. But then after that, we'll still send you a bit of money, but you really have to get a job. And again, I just really didn't want to do that. Um, so I lived in squat instead for the rest of my degree because I didn't want to pay rent. Um, but then, yeah, which means that technically my first job was at um, 21 and a half um, at the Daily Telegraph picture desk as an assistant picture editor. That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. 
If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week, without ads and day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God What Else, every Monday morning, and some merchandise. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>